Well, the compile can work out automatically that address at compile time so that when the program's built, that actual address is built into the program code. This is where the problem comes in. We've got a type T shape, which in this situation is a circle. But then we've got this little <coughs> if statement, if random's bigger than half, and we're going to delete whatever's held in S, and we're going to change it to a square. So we've got a T-shape object, or pointed to an object, which can go between a circle or a square. However, we're always going to call the draw method. And because of the way that the compiler works, no matter what object or class is stored within S, it will automatically find the correct draw method. So if it's a circle, it will call circle draw. If it's, if it's a square, it will call square draw. And we're going to look at the, the underlying mechanics of how that actually happens. Okay, two, two buzzwords, static binding. Okay, if we go back to the previous slide. T-circle, this is static object rather than dynamic object. This is dynamic. Why is it dynamic? This one's got a pointer. Its type can change. This one's static. Okay, it's not a pointer. Its type can't change. Uh, so static binding, this is uh, an example of static binding. Um, when this is compiled, the compiler can look at this and look at C and find the T-circle. So it can automatically put the address of the draw function into the actual assembly code to create it. Dynamic binding, uh, again, slightly different. Because we don't actually know the type of S, okay? we, we know it's a T-shape, but the, the classes that it can descend from can actually be anything that uh, descends from T-shape. So the address of the, the functions might actually, the address of the methods might actually be different. So, do I come on and sit down? The the method that the compiler works this out is uh, a work for every single situation kind of method. It will produce some assembly code, some machine code that will try and alter the address of the function call it's called. We can't statically bind a function or a method address when we don't know the type. Um, so we've got to, at runtime, actually look at the object that's in memory and say, right, this is the function that we'll call. And that's called an indirect address lookup. Okay, when you, you look at the assembly language underneath that's actually being created, um, for a static method call, you've got a direct address lookup. For a dynamic lookup, you've actually got an indirect. It's two different instructions. Jump to this address or jump indirectly to this address. Um, the jump indirectly will actually look up what's being pointed at and then jump. Okay, so it must call the method for the current object. Does anyone know what the current object's called? Yeah, this. 
as I've said before, if they're using the pointer variable, we don't know the type of the current object until we're at runtime. Okay, another example. We've got three dimensional, well, and a one-dimensional array which has three objects of type T-shape. We've got two circles and one square. This one's quite easy. Um, whilst we don't actually 100% know the type of A-shape zero, we can just simply look at it and say, right, that circle, circle draw. This one for the compiler is slightly more difficult to generate. Okay, so it's generating the assembly language for loop. But it's also got this to contend with, where in the middle of this for loop, the type of the class, the type of the object, and the address of the draw method changes in the middle of the for loop. So in this situation, it's a little bit more difficult for the compiler to generate something that works with this. So it has come up with a standard way of trying to deal with uh, dynamically bound address method, method addresses. Okay, so in order to prevent us from tearing our hair out when we're writing our programs, code generated must be efficient. Why must it be efficient? Why must the code be generated? It must be efficient. That's what we're looking for, efficiency. Yeah, if it wasn't efficient, you wouldn't use it, would you? Okay, if it was, took 10 minutes to call this function, and you'd all go away and you'd somehow figure out a way to statically bind all your method lookups. Must be simple. Why must it be simple? More importantly, the compiler writers need to be able to understand it. Um, it needs to be written in such a way that it can easily be changed into assembly language when the compiler goes through. Consistent, okay, for different types of classes, it should work in exactly the same way. You all, have you done um, stack frames with Tony Nickel when you did MBS last year? Didn't you? Um, the gamers, have you ever heard the term stack frame? No. Okay. When, when you write a function um, or a method, there must be a simple, consistent and efficient way for the parameters that are passed into that method to actually get in there. Okay. Don't forget, eventually this is turned into assembly language. So the compiler writers have come up with a standard way, which is called stack frame, where parameters are pushed onto the stack, um, address of the function, address of the return, all pushed onto the stack, so that you can actually use the stack to get access to the parameters that are passed into a function, and then be able to return to the next address after that function has been called. Okay, it's just a standard method for all kinds of function calls. So there needs to be some kind of consistency with um, dynamic methods as well. 
There needs to be a standard way that this works for every single kind of dynamic method. It might be dynamic, but the classes might be obvious, and in this situation it will still build this consistent code to ensure that there's not a problem in the future. And we do it in a minute, we look at a problem where we could compile something today and tomorrow it could stop working if we didn't use this consistent standard method to actually implement um, dynamic method goals. Flexible, same code must work with new descendant classes. Um, now this is more of a problem of yesteryear than, than today. Um, it used to be the case when you compile the program, you press compile, you walked away and came back either a couple of hours or a couple of days later. That's never been my experience of computing, it's certainly not your experience of computing nowadays. Um, but there is still a lot of hangover from you know, the olden days where it really used to bug and annoy people that they had to compile something. So they wanted these compilers to work in such a way that they could remember when something's been compiled and whether or not, whether or not it actually needs to be recompiled again. So nowadays most compilers work that once something's compiled, unless it's changed, or unless the addresses that it looks upon aren't changed, they don't need to recompile. <coughs> just a show of hands, who thinks it's the easiest way to compile programs just to build all every time? Nobody. Okay, never mind. Um, who thinks it's a problem to build from scratch rather than just to compile the things that need to compile? Okay, so this is a bit of a hang up from, from, from yesteryear. Um, new classes can be written anytime. Okay, we can create a new CPP file. We can inherit from T-shape, T-circle, T-square, and we can implement a new class. If this is in a different source file altogether, then really just a new source file should be compiled and not the original. <coughs> so it needs some way to continue to work, even if we've added new classes. Okay, so this is added to all this, the reason why the standard mechanism has actually been created. <coughs> Should not need to recompile calls to virtual methods. Okay, we'll, we'll see how that actually works in a minute. Um, yeah, we'll see how that works. It's best, best explained with an example. Okay, so it's got some, some solutions. First solution is the static binding method. Work out the appropriate method at compile time and then add the code to actually call that method. So we've got push shape zero onto the stack. Okay, this is that stack frame reference that I was talking about a minute ago. And then because we know it's a circle, okay, shape is actually T shape, but because we know 
it's a circle. We can just call the circle draw method. Once we get to the, the third item in the array, we push a shape to, and then we'd call t square draw. So what, in this situation, what the compiler would be doing is actually examining the object and saying, right, what type is this? What type should it be at this particular point in time? It's a t-square, so we'll generate the code to call the t-square draw method. Why wouldn't that work? Big long if statements 
but the compile generates under shape draw would actually include if shape is equal to t star into the compile code. If we created enough 1,000 classes, then that would be one big if statement. So the approach is not flexible, it's not efficient, and it's going to require us to recompile every time that we add a new class. In other words, it's not a very good way to solve this problem. The last option to approach this, this particular problem is to use virtual method tables, which is what the lecture is about, so this is the solution. Um, and this is kind of a, a diagram of what an object looks like in memory. And here we've got the individual objects. Over here we've got the virtual method tables. And here we've got pointer central functions. So, what's this actually say? Well, here's our three objects. Shape 0, shape 1, shape 2. We know this one's a circle, this one's a circle, and this one is a square. Over here we've got virtual method tables. This is just a table with a pointer to a function. Okay, so this is T-shape. Should really ask you that, because it's not written. This is T-shape, virtual method table. It's got a pointer to the hive. What will this pointer? Yep, that's pointed to draw, that's pointed to show. Okay, T-circle. T-circle has, yep, has its own virtual method table. And in this situation, what we're actually doing, we didn't override the high function. Okay, these things must be in exactly the same order. So the high function, draw function, show function, high will just link to whatever the T-shape is actually pointing to. Okay, it doesn't point directly to the hive method. It points to the T-shape address in the virtual method table. So that when you actually call on that draw method, sorry, hive method, it actually looks up this address and then looks up that address before it actually finds the hive function. Um, <coughs> we've got a new draw because we overrode it. We've created our own draw function. This is pointing towards our own uh, T-circle draw method. Uh, the T-circle show, again, it's pointing back upwards towards the virtual, the ancestor class, virtual method table. And then we've got the, the T-square as well. Again, hides pointing to the Ancestor, draw, we've got our own. Show, pointing up. <coughs> and if anyone can remember that, that second slide, we've actually got a new method, which is some kind of rotate function. And this, this method works quite well. It's got all those different properties. Okay, if we were to build some kind of representation in memory, we need to create a new class, then we simply create a new virtual method table which will point 
to its ancestor, it needed there. If we inherit it from T squared, or we're trying to create T rectangle or T rhombus. Then our new class will point to this virtual method table. So if we didn't overwrite draw, it would call the T squared draw method. Everyone happy with? Uh, I'll give you um, a hint. This is kind of one of Chris's standard exam questions. Draw a BMT and explain its purpose. So does everyone understand what's on the board in front of you? Yep. <coughs> okay, virtual method table. Table of addresses of the methods of a class. Um, it's basically just a list of addresses, function pointers. Looking at the design of code generated, Virtual map table equals address from offset zero in instance data. Um, okay, we we've got a, a link to our own VMT. The okay, we know the size of an address depending on what kind of computer we're using. That will all be standard size. They'll all be the same size. So we can actually use some kind of offset to actually get access to the different methods. Um, method pointer, okay, we'll look at the draw. Draws the second item in the list. So we can use one in that offset. Once we've got access to that address, then we can call indirectly that method. Okay, so it's it's kind of a lookup to a lookup and then with a that code or that pseudocode will work for any kind of um, dynamically bound object that we can create. Okay, when implemented in assembly, the extra cost of the method calls table lookup. What it means by table lookup, it really is just a lookup in the um, in the BMT. Okay, rather than being statically bound directly to the function or the method, then it's a lookup before it can actually get to the address of the, the method. First part of the BMT of the class must have the same order as that of its ancestors. Okay, if it doesn't work, come out in the same order, then you're going to have a problem because it knows draw is at address 1 for any object of type t-shape. Okay, t-square is a shape, therefore draw is at address 1 in the VMT. So that's a requirement for this to work. The offset of any virtual method of a class is the same in all of the classes, ancestors. That's just saying the same thing, isn't it? Any descendant must have that same order. Um, <clears throat> circle square VMT can be treated as a shape VMT. Does everyone agree with that statement? Circle square VMT can be treated as a shape VMT. 
per class, okay, this VMT is shared with as many different objects of that type as there are in the system, okay, you've got one object that uses this VMT, 100 objects that uses the same VMT. Does anyone know what RTTI is? Okay, it's possibly not something doubt very much the gamers will ever use it, but software engineers at some point might. It's actually runtime type information. Um, as I say, I doubt very much the gamers will ever really come across this. But software engineers, if you're doing anything with object inspector components, things like that, storing um, properties of components and files, things. You would access the runtime type information to be able to display things differently and it, it's, it's not a very nice way of doing things to actually access runtime type information. But you can do some clever things with it. Um, I'm not sure if Chris actually... I don't, I don't think he does, uh, but he might. Um, goes into any level of detail. There's a whole load of functions in C++ Builder um, that actually allow you to get runtime type information so that, you know, form builders and things like that all work. Uh, the VMT structure is also used in COM. Um, common object model. Have you come across this yet? Object linking embedding, ActiveX, DirectX, um, all based on this model called common object model. Um, common object model is slightly different um, than your standard object oriented. It's still object oriented, but it's it's a different way of working than, than normal. Um, you give an interface, and you can inherit interfaces, which are all abstract interfaces. So you can define an interface, but no implementation. So that when an object inherits from that interface, it actually has to define the functions or the methods for those um, methods that are actually declared in the interface. Uh, Chris does spend a good couple of weeks looking at the common object model and does go into it in a lot, lot of detail. Um, however, all interfaces in COM work in exactly the same way. They've got VMT. Um, so, gamers, DirectX, this is actually what's going underneath the skin when you call some of your DirectX functions. More on this in semester two, and believe me, there will be more. Uh, no point in defining a draw method for shape. Okay, shape. How do you draw shape? Well, it's got no 
It's not a square, it's not a circle, it's just, it's not a dot. It can be anything really, can't it? So, have you done abstract methods? Okay. So, declare it as an abstract method, um, pure, um, no implementation provided, C++ syntax, virtual draw equals zero. Okay, going back to that VMT. Okay, we've got T shape here, we've got a point to draw. What will the address will that be pointing at? Put just zero, uh, which is another name for null. So it can't actually execute anything at address zero. So the compiler actually stops that from happening. Stops you from declaring a class with an abstract method. <coughs> C sharp, Java, actually use the, the keyword abstract. Okay, we just answered that one value using the VMT. We just answered that. There is, but I forgot to bring it. Do us a favour, I mean, just rip out the page and just pass it around. I'm not used to the room registers, you so Just whack your name on this scrap of paper that's coming around. Um, right, that is what I want to talk. Again, I repeat, um, I'm not going to guarantee this. But this is kind of one of Chris Casey's standard exam questions. Talk about PMT, describe how it works. Talk about the benefits of uh, static methods, um, the overheads, and so on and so on. That URL at the top um, does look quite in detail at the difference in performance between the two different static and dynamic methods. So, <coughs> exam time. Night before, that reason that article. Okay, so looking at <coughs> how efficient this is versus uh, C, standard C, where it's all static. There's got to be, it, surely it's got to take more time and be less efficient than, than C, rather than, you know, static must be quicker than dynamic. But that's not always the case. Uh, Non-static C++ methods have an accurate parameter compared to the C. Okay, if you were calling a function in C, okay, function rather than a method, um, you would have some kind of parameter which pointed to the function that you wanted to be called. Or you'd have a function that said, draw a shape, and within that function, you'd have a big long if statement that said, if shape is circle, then call circle draw, if and so on and so on. Some of the things that we've already looked at previously would actually have to be implemented in C. Uh, C routine would need access to some kind of shared data. Um, how that's actually implemented is down to the actual C programming. There's no standard way to do it. Okay, so you're looking at another inefficiency. You've got different ways to do the same thing. Um, one developer in a team might like to do it one way, another developer in the same team might like to do it a completely different way. So already you've got inefficiencies. Um, <clears throat> the shared data would be, what would that be? 
function function calls, circle draw, square draw, star draw. Um, it could be a union. Have you done unions with Tony? Okay, it could be some kind of union with um, you know the parameters required for a square, parameters required for a circle. How many <coughs> how many data items would you need to draw a circle to? Well, three. The x and y and the radius. How many to draw a star? Four. Okay, because you need to know how many points are on the star. Okay, so that shared data area, because you still need to be passing in the same kind of type, uh, but that shared data area would have your three data items for a circle unioned with four data items for a star. Okay, what if we were talking about something more complex that required 10 memory items to be able to draw itself? Then that would still be in the same amount of error. And in this situation, whether you needed a circle, a star, or something else, you would need to still define the same block of error, block of memory for that to work. <coughs> um, small overhead for method indication. C++, then you've got to look up an address before you get to the method. Um, static routines, identical to C functions. What time is it? 22. 22. Oh, man, Object construction, um, small overhead, uh, can be reduced by inline. You all know what inline is. Yeah. But is there any advantage using C? Absolutely not, because you need some kind of initialization code in C anyway. Okay, the, the idea of constructors, it just makes it automatic. So there's a little difference between um, creating an object in C++ or actually defining some kind of data initialization in C. Object destruction, again, a little different. Uh, destructive though is automatic just happens. Um, C code will still need to tidy something up. If, if any dynamic memory had been allocated, it still needs to clean it up somehow. There is, if you've got an inheritance hierarchy, and in your inheritance hierarchy, the overridden methods constructors call one another. Okay, so you've got T shape, which initializes some data in the constructor, which T circle relies on that data existing or the, the locations for that memory to exist. Then that memory must have been allocated or initialized somehow. So when you've got a complex inheritance hierarchy, that can actually be quite expensive. But, again, that would still need to be done in static C. So, whether or not that's actually a cost or a benefit because it's automatic is, is down to the individual developer. Virtual function invocation, uh, slightly more expensive because it's got a lookup. However, where we've got optimizing compilers, okay, it might actually insert a static function call 
rather than dynamic function call. If the compiler can easily work out what that type of that object will be, <coughs> then it'll actually put it into the compiled code anyway. Um, virtual method call may replace a C switch statement. The C switch statement will be quite inefficient. Um, and you'd need to recompile it every time that you created a new object. So that's not really a good way to achieve. So there's a definite improvement in that area. And the object code itself will be at least as efficient as C, um, for one reason or another. Probably more efficient because of the, the checks that have to be made to find out whether or not the correct object is being um, called. Okay, we've already really seen that, haven't we? Um, we saw it in pseudo-algorithm. It's exactly the same thing. If you to actually try and implement this in C, then you still need some kind of switch statement or NIF statement. Okay, that's, that's just literally, rather than being a pseudo-algorithm, that's it in code. <coughs> memory overhead, does it use more memory? Uh, inheritance doesn't, okay, because inheritance is a logical um, thing rather than a physical thing. Virtual functions, the only real overhead is, is the VMT. Um, if you've got a VMT for every object, for every class, sorry, for every class in the system, then you've got these little bits of memory allocated with address pointers in. And that's the only real overhead of using virtual functions. Multiple inheritance. <coughs> you do have a more significant overhead. Chris is going to talk about that in another time. is all about linking to a method at runtime. Um, there's a standard mechanism to achieve this, to allow different objects to have the correct method called when it's needed to be called. Um, and unless we're going to start writing really complicated compilers with different routines for different situations, and we've got the standard method to do it, which decides at runtime what kind of class is being, what kind of object is being invocated, and then using that to find the correct method. Uh, VMTs um, is an efficient method to do this. Um, what were those things that we said before? Efficient, it's flexible. What was the other one? Consistent. It's definitely consistent. It works the same across the entire system. Any questions? Okay, putting his, his first slide up. Okay, put your hand up if you don't think you can do this. Explain the problem with dynamic binding. Chris will be so happy. Explain how compilers implement VMTs. Great. Uh, draw a VMT for an inheritance hierarchy. He's going to be so pleased. 
and discuss the overhead associated with object-oriented features. And if you look at those things, you can understand this. Then you can kind of get the idea of what kind of exam question he's going to ask. Okay, he's going to be looked to see if you understand those things. Right. Um, I believe I'm taking the next practical hour, and then Gav's taking the one after that. What room are you in? Same 33, isn't it? 18. 